He worked right here at WRBL with me 45 years ago. And after his broadcast career, he went into becoming a journalism professor at a university in Tennessee. Of course, all the way through his storied career, he has depended upon his faith. And you're going to hear all about this from my special friend coming up in Faces of Faith. A real treat. Stay tuned. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. All right, pull up a chair, everyone. You're in for a treat as we get to talk to Steve Beverly. Steve and I go way back in our uh, time together in broadcasting and in his time as a professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Steve, Great to hear from you, my friend, and thanks for being willing to join me here on this podcast. Hey, uh, you had to tell everybody it was 45 years. (laughs) (laughs) They can tell by our heads, Steve. (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, when when I look at myself in the mirror every morning, I can't deny it. It has been 45 (laughs) years, but uh, it's good to be with you, Phil. And, you know, you and I have been friends for so many years, but uh, we, we can be where we haven't had a conversation in even six months and we can pick it up with the word and, and uh-huh. so that is, that, that's a true friendship. It really is. I got to tell our viewers and listeners that, um, I was driving back from my hometown in Lafayette, Georgia, which is 200 miles North of Columbus, uh, been a week or so ago. And, uh, as I was driving, I was thinking, who can I call that would talk to me all the way home? And, we almost made it. We talked for just shy of two hours, and it was great catching up. And, of course, that set the tone for what we're about to talk about today here on this podcast. But, again, thanks for taking the time. I do want to go back because your memory uh, is incredible. You don't ever have to worry about having to take Prevagen or anything because I, I'm amazed at how how detailed your memory is when it comes to, well, for instance, my own uh, career here. Uh, you came to work before me here at WRBL back in the mid-70s, and I didn't remember my first day on the job, and we got to talking, and in fact, you you wrote an article, and as I was reading it, you were telling me what happened on my first day at work here at WRBL back in the fall of 1976, but let's, um, I'm, I'm going to do the, the The setup to it is you and I both applied for a job here at WRBL. Dick McMichael was the news director at the time, and um, um, we it was a a reporting position. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you interviewed before or after me, but my memory of the day when I came in for the interview, Dick took me into the studio, and I sat there and and did some prompter reading, which I was very comfortable with. Uh, but after I'd finished that, he came on the intercom and he said, uh, okay, Phil, uh, tell me how you think the um, presidential election is going to go between uh, Carter and Ford coming up uh, shortly. Oh, boy, I was riveted with what do I say? How do I, you know, where do I begin and, and, and how do I sound, um, you know, like a journalist in, in my response and and." Uh, I, I rambled on, I'm sure, for a couple of, of uh, you know, excruciatingly painful minutes. And he finally cut in and he said, tell you what, Phil, tell me, how do you think the Georgia Bulldogs are going to do this fall in their football season? And so I went on a five-minute soliloquy about, you know, how Georgia's football team looked and, and the how the season might uh, pan out. And so at the end of the interview, he told me, he said, Phil, I think – you're more cut out for sports than news. So, uh, and and thankfully, he said, "I'll keep your card and give you a call." And a couple of months later, he did call back, and I was able to land a job as a sports anchor. So, uh, you beat me out on that. The the person hired as as opposed to me for that reporting position was Steve Beverly. So, so tell me about your experience with Dick and in, in interviewing for that job. Well, I came in, it, the the job was posted, and of course, Phil and I both went to the University of Georgia, and we, we finally talk about being alums of the Bill Martin School of Journalism. <laughs> he was our major professor, yeah. and a, a, a really unconventional guy, we loved him, Yes, but uh, they had a placement office in the University of Georgia, and so I just happened to be 
going by in the afternoon and uh, George Abney, who was the head of the placement office, had just posted, I'm talking about seconds, had just posted on the board that there was a job open for a weekday reporter and a Sunday night anchor at WRBL. Well, the first place in the world that I ever remember was Columbus, Georgia, because my father was a pastor there from 1956 to 61. So, I mean, this was almost like I'm, I'm living a dream right here that, uh, and this is the station I grew up watching. I mean, I, I watched the other guys too, but I mean, this is the station that at that point in time, was unquestionably you if you lived in Columbus you watched WRBL mm-hmm. and so I immediately I said is, is this open right now and Mr. Abney said yes it is so I dashed down to Martin's office and I said you know should I should I call in for this he says and he had this grunt voice and he would always say <laughs> hey hey how about, why don't you just go on here and, and pick up this phone and we'll just put it on my tie line here and you pick up this phone call him over there right now don't Sounds wait just till you like get back Bill. to the apartment <laughs> <laughs> and so i called and uh so dick answered the phone and and said could you come on x day which was about two days later i said i almost said yeah i can come tomorrow if you want me to mm-hmm. So I did. I, I drove the three hours to Columbus and had a similar type of interview in audition as you did. And I got asked the same question about my analysis of the Carter Ford race. Mm-hmm. And here, here's, I don't even know if you and I have ever talked about this. Frankly, my goal long term was to be in sports because I had done tons of play-by-play sports dating back to high school. And I had about six years of experience doing that. And that's really what my heart and soul was to do. But if news opened up, yeah, I would do that. Uh, but as it turns out, I ended up going in the direction that I think God intended for me to go. And mm-hmm. when you came in and did sports, I think that it was really God leading us into the areas that we needed to be particularly yes. to start our careers. And, and so uh, I ended up getting the job, but then here you come in the door just about three months later. Now, I remember it was a, a cold October day, and you come in, and George Theringer, who was the longtime veteran sports director, was out sick. And so I remember Tom Terry was the producer at that time, and Tom said, Phil, I guess you're going to have to end up doing sports tonight. And so your first day on the job, you're thrust right into the role of being the sports anchor, and it was perfect because you were great. Well, that, again, I don't remember that. <laughs> I know it, I know, and that doesn't mean a thing, but and certainly know it happened. But, um, and, and George was there for several months. He, he you know, got better and, and came back on the air. I basically was doing the later, you know, uh, newscast and and then he ended up retiring and, and leaving WRBL and then I got uh, to be the sports director but um, describe those years uh, and and I know that you shifted from WRBL to WTVM mm-hmm. but uh, describe the um, some of the talent the people you remember maybe some of the the most memorable stories of the time that you were reporting back in those uh, late 1970 years Oh goodness! Well, when it, when we were when I was still at WRBL, I was there for 15 months, and uh, did the Sunday night news as well as being a reporter. I worked for a long time with a guy named Jack Kendrick for for several months, and Jack and I had a lot of personal philosophy of life differences, but we never had one argument. Uh, I think we were a class example that you can be from a different viewpoint and get along, which we have lost our skill at being able to do that in our culture today, very sadly. Uh, But Jack and I had a great working relationship. Jack had a great sense of humor. We were both young reporters. Jack was three years older than I, and we were both young reporters with ambitions as to, you know, we were going to go all the way, and and, and uh, Jack ended up eventually in Dallas, Fort Worth, and sad, about 10 years after we worked together, he passed away way too soon, uh, but we had 
I, I think for me, those memories of Sunday nights and at 630, and it was such a challenge because uh, we would we were it in plus a film processor. That was all that we had to put together the Sunday news. There's no producer. We produced everything. Jack did the weather. I did the sports. We both divided up the news copy. That's the way you did it in that era. And uh, we had a also, I, it, but I, just to tie it into our faith, the news was 6.30 to 7 on Sunday nights. <clears throat> and at 7 o'clock, I was out the door as fast as I could sign. You had to, to sign to the copy. Yeah, and I was headed because in, in that era, still, uh, we had most of our churches, which sad again mm-hmm. that we have abandoned that, but most of our churches in the community still had evening services. And so I was all the way, and it was only about maybe seven minutes drive to Sherwood Methodist Church, which is where my father had pastored when I was a kid. And I would be in the door, and I led the congregational music on Sunday night, and I would be in the door, and there would people say, I just saw you on TV. How'd you get here so fast? <laughs> but uh, we had a, a, an assignment editor and reporter named David Eisen who yes. was assigned to me early on to help show me the ropes, and I'm sure I slowed him down at times, but David was a real help to me to get comfortable with the mechanics of what the day was like and in how we went about putting together our reports. And those first two weeks in particular, uh, I there were just times that when, you, when you're a rookie and you're first starting, you want to please, but you're nervous because you want to be sure you're doing everything right. And so the best way I could do it is to watch how everybody else did. And David was a great example for all of us. In the mornings, we had Brenda Blackman, who uh, went on to WWOR in New York, and she had a fabulous career nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Brenda was the morning anchor. And I, I will never forget, Brenda would always come in. When I first came to WRBL, we only had one air-conditioned car, and it was a Ford Pinto <laughs> that the bottom metal was rotting out, and you could actually see the road as you were driving, and one day I thought that eventually we were going to have to start it like Fred Flintstone and pat your feet to go down the road. But Brenda would always get in early ahead of everybody else and grab the Pinto. And and so that left us guys who had to be out in coats and ties, and and, you know there was none of this casual dress that I'm seeing with reporters today. Uh, but we had to be in full dress because that was the requirement at WRBL, and we would roast out in those, uh, I can't even remember what model it was, but we would just roast when we were out there driving around, and it was 85, 90, 100-degree heat. Mm-hmm. Brenda would just smile as she would drive <laughs> off in that pinto. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, Phil, before uh, I turn it back to you, just – one of the most important things for me during those early years was the opportunity to work with some of the legends that I had grown up in the 1950s watching. And they were my icons. And I'm talking about people like Doug Wallace doing the weather and Don Nally, who had been, when I was a kid, Don was sports director of WRBL. And then you, you're talking about people like Roselle Fabiani yep. and uh, just George Gingell, George Theringer, uh, people like that, that I tried to, when I had the opportunity to get a few minutes just to ask them about what it was like when it all started, because I'm a TV historian, and I just tried to soak up like a sponge what they they were part of television when there were no rules. So they were writing the rules mm-hmm. as they went. And so that was a fabulous education for me in those early years is to be able to drink in from those that they were there when it all started. And, and to me, I, I, I wouldn't trade anything for that. That was worth a master's degree for me right there, being able to learn from them. Truly, um, having that exposure to that generation uh, of broadcasters, the the early pioneers, 
helped you in as you went on with your career because you are a um, a um, sought after television, especially early television historian, and uh, and you know one of the areas that you really like to specialize in are game shows. Uh, you've developed friendships. Tell me about some of the friendships with folks that are, are listening and watching to the, this uh, podcast might remember the days of You Don't Say, and which yes. happened to be my favorite. Uh, but you, and, and how you developed um, a, a, an affinity for that brand of television. Well, when I was three, and, and I do have vague memories even going that far back, but when I was I told three, you, folks, his memory was great. <laughs> When I was three, we lived on 35th Street. That's where the parsonage of Sherwood Methodist Church was. And so I got hooked in to what was the biggest phenomenon of the time. It started in 1955 before I knew what everything was all about. But by the time I was three, I understood this show called The $64,000 Question. Which for people who have a frame of reference predominantly of who wants to be a millionaire and what a phenomenon that became in 1999, mm-hmm. this was it in 19 in the mid-1950s to the late 50s. And this was a show that if you decided to take a walk down the street on Tuesday night when the $64,000 question was on, and very few people did that, <laughs> but if you did you would probably be hearing the show on your neighbor's television set. Uh, It was really said by many critics that probably the best thing that ABC and NBC could do was to go dark (laughs) during that period because everybody was watching $64,000. And so that's what hooked me in. I mean, it was done like almost a sporting event. It was live and you had average people winning life-changing amounts of money. Now, of course, then we later learned that there was a thing called the quiz scandals where they had fixed a number of these shows, just like professional wrestling, even down to the stage directions of how they were supposed to pat their brow with their handkerchief rather than mop it because it was more dramatic that way. (laughs) Uh, But that's how I got hooked in, and so... Uh, before I started the school in daytime, I would sit there in the morning and before I would be sent out to play, uh, usually against my will, I would watch all the game shows that were on in daytime and everything from the original Price is Right with Bill Cullen to uh, a show called Dotto that became huge in daytime television with a, a, a great broadcaster named Jack Nars as the host who yes, became a friend of mine in later years. Well, all of that, that's how I got hooked in, and when I was in school, I lived for the holidays and the summers so that I could catch up on all my game shows, because (laughs) I would have canceled every soap opera on television and run wall-to-wall game shows every day. (laughs) I hated it when I was visiting my grandmother, and she'd say, get it to the stories, because that's what she would call her soap operas. But, But anyway, when the World Wide Web first began to have uh, an impact in the 90s, I developed a website called tvgameshows.net, which I had no idea where I was going with it. Originally, it was a nostalgia site because in the 90s, game shows really began to wither away, and there were only a very few of them left. But once Millionaire became this explosive show, and just changed the face of television viewing for about three years. Uh, I turned tvgameshows.net into what amounted to a wire service for game shows, including I had the results of everybody who won on a given day and how much they won, et cetera, like this. And I had no idea that the web was beginning to have this kind of impact. And all of a sudden I get, start getting calls from radio stations, from newspapers, and asking me, why is all of this happening? Why are we suddenly having this impact of game shows and quiz shows again? And I began to realize the internet was having this impact. Well, okay, fast forward to uh, the summer of 1999. And this is when Millionaire 
was beginning to have just this huge transformative impact on everybody. And there was a guy named David Nars who saw TVGameshows.net, and he says, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Well, of course, I thanked him for that. But it turns out David Nars was the son of Jack Nars mm, wow. that I mentioned, and yeah. he was the nephew of a guy that we all knew is Tom Kennedy, yes. who most of us began to see Tom in the 60s on a show called You Don't Say, that Phil and I was both of our one of our favorites. Yeah. And then Tom went on to do uh, a total of 16 game shows, and, and the one that I think cemented him was the nighttime version of Name That Tune from 1974 to 81. I mean, nobody was any more tailor-made for a show than Tom was for that. So a few days later, I get this email, and in the inbox it says Tom Kennedy. If you want to know why Tom has a name not NARS, it's because years ago, both he and his brother were out in Los Angeles, and they had uh, contracts with different car dealerships for Los Angeles. And so what happened was the ad agency decided they wanted Jim NARS to change his name so they could distinguish between the two. And they sat around a table, and they kicked around names, and suddenly Tom Kennedy came up, and Tom said, well, for the money you're prepared to pay me, you can call me anything you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so anyway, it, I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. It was Tom Kennedy, and he was my absolute icon of an MC. I mean, he was the guy that I just thought, and I love Bill Cullen, but I thought Tom was the best there ever was. And so that started, that email from him, he had gone to my page and he was very complimentary of it. And then he agreed to let me interview him three days later. And I'm like a kid in a candy store going, but Tom and I, from that point, developed a personal relationship that became a friendship that I cherished immensely. And it continued until the day he died, uh, one year ago this month, uh, it was, it, it was, Tom was 93, but we would check in on each other, both either email or phone call. And, and it was just really a fabulous relationship, but through tvgameshows.net, I became one of the founding members of an organization called game show Congress. And we did seven events in Los Angeles to honor the legends of game shows. And I got to know these people. These were, I mean, here, here I am, a little a kid from Waycross, Georgia. And all of a sudden, I'm getting to hobnob and MC events with my icons. That doesn't happen. <laughs> so, so it was really a great experience for me because I discovered that a lot of these people were just plainly people like you and me. Tom was from Louisville, Kentucky. He never lost his roots. He loved people. He was still a Kentucky boy at heart. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, it was being able to see these people who most of them had retired from television, and they were just glad that people remembered who they were. We could probably spend the whole podcast uh, in that uh, on that subject, but I want to circle back to um, your mentioning that your dad was a pastor, mm -hmm. and uh, that had to have placed you in a um, an atmosphere of uh, understanding at an early age who God was, who he, uh, he is, and talk to me about your faith journey and how it, uh, I, I'm assuming, uh, began in your early years as you watched your dad in the pulpit right here in Columbus, Georgia. That's right. Uh, Phil, I was blessed uh, in that I had a father who was regarded as one of the preeminent pastors, particularly from the pulpit in the entire South Georgia Conference of Methodism back when, I'll, I'll go so far as to say back when Methodism was Methodism, and uh, we won't go into <laughs> the controversies there right now, but uh, my father was another one of these people who never lost his roots. Uh, he was a people's pastor, and he was the kind of person, he had a firm grip on leadership. Uh, he was an outstanding leader of a congregation, but at the same time, he had, my father had one of the best senses of humor, 
of any pastor that you would ever be around. And for me, I, I guess that's where I got the gene was some of that uh, from him. But from the time that I knew and I could intellectually process about the world, uh, we were in church. And it's it, it, I can say this, it can be a microscope or uh, it, it can be a very, very difficult thing being a preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I had peers who didn't deal with that very well and unfortunately rebelled. And I think one of the things that you think about when when you are seeing that happen with others through the years is, you know, why why not me and why them? And and I know my father never really said this to me until I was an adult. And he said that I always wanted to set a tone in the house that things were either right or wrong. But he never once said to me, how do you think it would make the congregation think? What do you think it would make the congregation think? Or how do you think it would make me look if you did that? And I think that was some of the problems that uh, other preachers' kids may have had being in that environment because of the fact there were some pastors and their mothers who would put them under that kind of added pressure. That's tough. Uh, my daddy just made it. It's either right or wrong, and and that's how I expect you to behave. But I was never under that added pressure that I had to live up to something so it would make him or mama look good. Mm. And to me, I'm always I'm always grateful and I'm always blessed because I never felt the need to rebel. Uh, I had a father who was an example. And he lived it. And for me, those early years in Sherwood Church, we had one of the most vibrant and growing congregations in Columbus at that point in time. And I had, if you will, I had probably more than 100 to 200 additional parents. (laughs) And and I, I mean, the couples who were part of that church, the parents and their children, I mean, I was... Uh, if there was something that mama and daddy had to be at, and it was something that I didn't need to be there, I, I had tons of people in the church that were willing for me to come over to their house until they got through. And and they were all just such wonderful people, uh, just great examples for me. And to this day, I still draw from the examples of the lay people who were in Sherwood Church at that time. They were just marvelous and people that you really knew they were good people to pattern your life after. Mm-hmm. When did you know, uh, was there a specific moment where you looked at yourself and said, um, I've heard what my dad has preached, and I want this to become a part of who I am? Uh, I was 13, and you can imagine there were people who – in the congregations we were in, and I did, you know, you you know me, and I did a lot of speaking mm-hmm. in things even as young as about 12 uh, in church when I got into the MYF years, and if we had a youth night or something, I usually was one of the front people for mm-hmm. that because I was very comfortable in front of a microphone. That's what TV will do to you, <laughs> but, uh, but we had a youth activities week and and we our family had moved to Waycross, Georgia at the time. And so uh, in Trinity Methodist Church, we had a youth activities week and there was uh, uh, a youth minister named George Matheson. And he later went on to become a, a very respected minister in the Alabama West Florida Conference and was pastor at Auburn First United Methodist Church uh, for many years. And George, uh, led that youth activities week. And whereas I knew intellectually that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior and that I had heard all the stories and, you know, had been taught by wonderful people in Sunday school as mm-hmm. well as hearing my father's sermons, I knew I needed to make that commitment. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was at the time when I was 13 and I came forward and I said, this is what I want my commitment of my life to be. And that's, you know, the interesting thing about it is I, I was saying a minute ago, a, a lot of people automatically assume that if you're a preacher's kid, that you, and, and particularly in that era, if you were a male, that you were going to follow in your father's footsteps mm-hmm. and become a pastor yourself. It would have been a great honor to do that. But I remember my father sat me down and he said, I struggled with that for a little while. And my father said, you should only do that if you genuinely feel the call. Don't do it because other people think you should. He said, unfortunately, we have a number of daddy-called ministers and not enough God-called ministers. Uh And that really struck it with me because doors began to open up for me in broadcasting at a much earlier age than the average person in local radio. And I loved it. And I knew that was where my life really needed to be taking on that path. So I did not go into the pulpit ministry. But I've also said many times, Phil, that by not doing that, uh, I think that the door opened up for me to share my faith as one that people would see on the home screen. And I would get invitations to speak at churches and at uh, youth groups, things of that nature, back when I was young enough that people thought I was young. (laughs) Uh, I I was able to do that in a fashion that for me probably was more effective than if I had been a pulpit minister and a pastor of a congregation. So I went the route that I believe God intended me to do. But that commitment came from that night under George Matheson's uh, fabulous preaching uh, back in 1967 when I was 13 years old. We've spent some time talking about your dad, but I know that your mom is still with us. Uh, She's spunky. Uh, (laughs) Your personality is a lot like hers. But uh, let's talk about the influence on your faith that your mom had. My mother was the daughter of a Wesleyan Methodist minister. But so many of the Wesleyan congregations in smaller towns could not afford a livable wager. Uh, Boy, boy, let's go back. (laughs) Could not afford a livable wage. Let's don't put the R in. Uh, see, th- see, when, when you do something like this live, you just got to leave in the mistakes. That's, the way <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, they could not afford a livable wage. So my my grandfather was, in addition to being a pastor on Sunday in Waycross, Georgia, the same town that my father grew up in, and that's where my parents met. Uh, he was a brick mason and was considered to be one of the best that there was. My, my grandfather, his father, came over from England, and the, the name was Wigglesworth, which, of course, if you have a last name like that, you're going to get a lot of jokes here and there. <laughs> but Wigglesworth is the name of a, a tremendous theologian from England named Smith Wigglesworth. And also, uh, there's a town in England Wigglesworth, which when Rebecca and I went over there at one point uh, during the 1980s, we visited there. It's a little small village. But my mother, she grew up under her father being uh, a man of faith and a man of the cloth. And so she was the perfect complement to my father because uh, she had had that grounding and rooting in her faith Mm -hmm. As she grew up, and she had five brothers, and so she was, uh, they had another, she had a sister who died at 13, and so uh, mama was really, uh, she had to struggle to deal with five other brothers being in the house, but uh, mama was really a, a tremendous strength for me. When my father was diagnosed with depression in 1971, my mother was called on to have strength and to be a rock as she never had been before. Because in 1971, 
50 years ago, we didn't know as much about mental health and depression as we do now. And so mama was a great example to me during that time about how she, she had to be undergoing a myriad of emotions, but she set, stayed strong and was really the heart and soul of my father ultimately getting well. And, and so, I mean, you live with a mother with an example like that, and she had a pretty good sense of humor herself. Yes. Uh, it, 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 it can't help but be a strength in your own Christian walk as well. Well, I know you mentioned uh, depression that uh, your dad dealt with, and that has become uh, a platform that you have taken on as it relates to people in the business that I'm in and, and you know, the broadcasting industry. And um, let's being Faces of Faith podcast, um, bring uh, that subject matter into uh, the light as you see it based on the pressures that young people especially face who are starting out in an industry that they're trying to make a name for themselves, not being paid a whole lot of money, trying to get to the next biggest market. The pandemic hits. I mean, there are stresses and pressures uh, at every turn. And uh, so, so posture that this generation of journalists and what they face that, uh, and, and from your own personal experience that might be able to offer, uh, shed some light on, on what they need to think about and consider. Well, and I think Phil, one ad- additional thing that I will add to the table you just set there is the fact that local television news because of economics has expanded the numbers of hours or half hours that they are doing local news today. But I'll, I'll be bold enough to say that they haven't gone far enough to add the number of personnel that it takes to truly do this right. Uh, And I, I won't go into the technical aspect of this, but, Uh, The cost to buy a show such as, let's say, a Dr. Phil or the Ellen DeGeneres show or something of that nature, they have become exorbitant because of the high salaries that the stars of those shows command. And they expect with every renewal of the contract, a certain percentage of increase that then adds to more pressure on the bottom line of a station. So many television stations have decided that rather than buy another syndicated show, let's just add an hour of news because it's less expensive and we've got the personnel in place. But the problem is, is that with every hour that you add, if you don't add a substantive number of personnel, with every hour of news that you add, it puts more pressure and stress on the existing staff. Uh, And sometimes I think managements are detached enough from the inner workings of a television newsroom that they don't understand that this is putting mental stress uh, as well as physical stress, even on young people who are in their 20s. And then think about today the numbers of stories that involve crime and, and young people are now exposed to more and more things that are not happy ending type of stories. And uh, you think about in big cities where we have seen these mass shootings or even small cities where maybe it's a school that it happened in. Uh, To be the reporter that's called on to do that. uh, I mean, this is why we're seeing an increasing number of folks with PTSD that they are having to take advantage if the company has a plan to allow you to visit a psychologist. We, we are fortunately seeing more television stations that are beginning to bring in psychologists if there is a, a major story that is, is traumatic, mm-hmm. uh, a trauma type story that they're having to do. I'll, I'll tell briefly my story because we don't have time for us to go into the whole detail. Okay. I, I was growing up And then when I got into television, somewhat of what you would call an overachiever, 
and sometimes with overachievers, and, and I'll place myself in this category, is that you put more pressure on yourself mm-hmm. to do more and to do better. And it's the self-pressure, and it's the failure to understand the need for self-care and to take those moments to breathe away from the frenetic activity of a TV newsroom. And I didn't do that very well. I didn't have hobbies that could take me away. Mm-hmm. You, know, you remember that old commercial about uh, Calgon bath oil beads? Take me away, Calgon. It shows you how old I am, and you are too, Phil. But, uh, <laughs> but we don't... I remember the Geritol commercials, too. Yeah, yeah, well, I can go through a long litany of that, but <laughs> feel stronger fast. But uh, what you have is that so many of us who get into this profession don't have a natural distraction away from the office. We are always on call, mm-hmm. and there's always even more pressure on us to be, and yes, I think it's very important to give back to your community, but everybody is pulling and tugging at you to be at this function or that function because you're a quote celebrity. And I became a news director in 1983. And over my career, I I was in charge of three different television stations in the Southeast in, in news. But in 1991, uh, the pressures of being news director at W. BBJ TV here in Jackson, Tennessee, got to the point that one night I came in after the six o'clock news and I walked in the front door and I fell to my knees and I had a nervous breakdown. And it was the collective pressures of being in charge of a news department that was sorely understaffed and I tried to be Superman. Individual reporters, producers try to be Superman. Somebody is out in the newsroom on vacation or suddenly somebody calls in sick. Well, in TV news, that adds just an extra amount of stress because somebody's got to fill a slot Uh in a given day. You don't have extra people that can just call in and ask to do this. And so uh, I tried to be Superman. I tried to do the work of about three people. And that was the night that I knew that I was having my first bout with depression. Over the years, I've had three bouts with clinical depression. I am living proof that you can come back. I am fortunately uh, for me, I am going on seven years that I haven't had a bout with depression and that doesn't mean that I'm not vulnerable to it again. I take a small tablet every day that really keeps me in a stable and an even keel situation. I never was bipolar. There's, there's 63 different types of depression that have been diagnosed. But the bottom line to it is, and I will, I will take this, this part of it, I don't know how someone can begin to make that journey back from depression if they don't hold on to the hand of God at the same time. Because you have to have a rock in addition to the people who are supportive of you, but you have have to have a rock that's going to be there for you Mm 24-7 across the board. I might have recovered anyway from depression, but I don't think it would have happened as sustaining and as substantively if I didn't have Jesus Christ as my rock to help me through that. Uh, and that, that's one thing that I think it is so important for people in any profession. Uh, There's so many professions today that stress can build up, and, and we now know so much more about mental illness. The thing that is important to me both as a Christian and as one who has been through this, is that we continue to strip away the stigma that people have placed on mental illness and let people understand that it's okay. If you went, it's okay to go get help. If you had a, an abscess tooth, you wouldn't try to deal with it yourself. Mm-hmm. If you had a broken leg, you wouldn't try to set it yourself, I hope. And so what I'm saying is, is that we have got to take completely the stigma away from mental illness and saying that 
there's something wrong with you or, or that person's gone crazy. They haven't. It's no different than a physical mm-hmm. disease or a physical illness. It just affects your emotional nervous system. And you've got to get help for that and not be embarrassed about it. So I say that I take that message to groups all over the country. I, I have written about this for people who are in the TV news profession because of the stresses that there are there. But it really goes, I, and I found out since I started writing, I've heard from people who are police officers, school teachers, you name the profession. And they've said, you know, I've been on the verge of going through the same thing, or I've already gone through the same thing. I've heard from people who are in television news from all over the country that people would be extraordinarily surprised in their local markets to find out I've been there. I've had depression, but I've been able to come back from it. And so that's the kind of message that I try to send to everybody today. You can't get well if you don't get help. Well, Steve, this, um, this topic is something that, again, people can read about. They can go uh, look you up on Facebook and, and read your convictions and your strategies for dealing with this. And thank you for, you know, bringing a subject up that, frankly, doesn't get talked about. You know, it, it is one of those sweep it under the rug, keep it, especially if you are in if you have a public image. You, you want and, to. and, and here, here's the thing. There's a, there is a meteorologist in uh, Minneapolis, and he and I have become email acquaintances since I started going public with my experience. And, and he was asked, because he was a celebrity, he was asked to emcee an event that was uh, an outdoor walk for public awareness about depression and mental illness. And so what he did on this given day, he had been holding back a long time because of who he was Uh in the profession that he was in. Uh And before the walk started, he said, if you'll indulge me a minute, I want to tell you about my experience with this. And he proceeded to tell these hundreds of people that have been gathered in a park in Minneapolis, St. Paul, about the fact that he had had ongoing battles with depression for 20 years. And he's a guy that most people would have never known because of the persona that he was expected to maintain mm-hmm. on the air. It was one of the most moving things that you will ever see or read about because it took courage for him to do that. It really did. It took courage for him to be able to step up and say, all right, I've, I've been there and I'm not just here as a celebrity starter for this event. I'm here because I've been there. We could go on uh, another hour. Uh, We've not been talking quite an hour, but um, I I would want to beg your uh, indulgence to come back and let's continue a discussion that we know can go on for hours based on our phone conversation from a about a week ago, <laughs> but um, we we have so many bases to cover. But uh, thank you for taking us back to your memories of when you worked here, and we won't say again how many years ago that was. But we're um, again, all you have to do is look at our uh, hairline, and you you know we've been around a while. You mean I've got a hairline? <laughs> <laughs> but but. The thing that I really appreciate and consider to be a true blessing in life is to establish a friendship early on in, in, you know, in your younger years and that that relationship continues through the decades. And here we are 45 years after we first met and still having conversations, still in a friendship mode that uh, allows us to pick up the phone and say, and remember, and go right on with the conversation. You, um, you're a kindred spirit uh, to me, Steve. Uh, you're a blessing to me. Uh, I remember a phone conversation I had with you maybe a month ago, and basically yeah. the phone call was, I, I was dumping on you. I, I, I needed somebody to talk to about a certain situation, and so I, I picked you. And you just don't do that unless, you know, you have a, a kindred spirit that you know 
that you're going to get the response that you're looking for. Uh, you were a big help to me that night. But thank you for uh, for joining me here on the podcast. Again, I want to bring you back, and, and who knows, we may establish a regular guest on this podcast every so often and, and revisit. There's uh, there are so many topics to talk about. This guy right here is a wrestling uh, professional, not in the sense of doing it in the ring, but knowing who does it and following professional wrestling, even back to the days of the Municipal Auditorium in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, and the times when I would refuse to uh, let sports cover wrestling. I would turn it over and call it entertainment sports and turn it over to somebody like Steve or uh, H.K. Johnston, uh, to call the wrestling highlights from the auditorium and the uh, those days uh, again just incredible memories Steve but uh, thanks for taking us down memory lane but thanks for sharing from your heart I always uh, if we get to that point in a conversation where it gets to where the person that I'm interviewing is speaking from their heart that's when the Lord I think is really able to use what is being said and I believe that's the case today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Phil, of course, in addition to what you talked about, our personal relationship. It's it's nice to touch base with the folks in Columbus again and people who are my age that I grew up with there. Uh, it's always nice to be able to come back and have a visit and, you know, with the technology today that allows us to do it right yeah. from our living rooms. <laughs> and it, it's in or, or our faux living rooms. <laughs> but uh, I, thanks for having me on, Phil. And uh, let me just say to everybody in Columbus, God bless all of you. Uh, you were a joy to me back in the years between 1976 and 82 when I was in media there. And if it hadn't been for Columbus, I would not have been able to go on and have the, the long career I did in media and then as a media professor. And so I'm always grateful to Columbus for being the place that gave me my start. All right, Steve. Good to have you back. Again, we're going to invite you back on the podcast uh, down the road. This is about my 24th or 25th one, so sorry it took so long to get to you, but uh, <laughs> it was well worth the wait. We thank you for, again, sharing from your heart. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. And as I always say at this time, whatever you're going through, always remember to keep the faith. Join us next time, won't you?